you really have to believe that it will happen, that you can be the one to make it happen. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. Adulting can be hard, but you don't have to go it alone. I created this podcast to give you inspiration and let you know you're not alone in feeling stuck in midlife. Both men and women are welcome here, but if you are a woman, I also invite you to join our Midlife Uprising community for women, where we're making waves and reimagining what it means to age. Being part of this community for women will remind you on a regular basis that you're not too old and it's never too late to do that thing you've been thinking about. You can find more information at latebloomerliving.com forward slash community, and I hope to see you there. Hello, my friend. I think you might know by now if you've been listening to this podcast that I have a particular love in my heart for debut novelists who have uh, come at it a little bit later in life. And I have another one of those for you today. My guest today is a father, a father of four, who raised his kids, worked to pay the bills, but all the while he was continuing to develop his own passion on the side, as it were. His name is Paul Lamb, and I spoke to him all the way back in, oh, March of this year. And when we spoke, we thought, you know, this this is perfect to go out around Father's Day because the themes of his book are oh so very much about the father-son relationship and there's a you know I don't want to do any spoilers so I'm not going to tell you anything more his novel is titled one match fire and I'm going to read you a little something that I that I read on Paul's website and what he said is I'm retired now from being a wage slave in the vulgar business world where I had worked to pay my bills, but had never sought a career. My children are grown and flown, leading fulfilling lives. I am free to pursue writing my stories as much as I want. And so I do. That makes me so happy. So without further ado, here's Paul Lamb. Let's go. Hey, Paul, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, good. I'm glad to be here. I, you know, I feel like this is a really good fit. I do too. And and I'll just I'll just jump in by saying I finished your novel recently and was so moved by it. And I loved the convention that you used of switching the point of view from character to character. Yes. And you really are in people's thoughts. And, and 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 talking about kind of how they're 
you know how we we all I think tend to like grind on a on a topic with a relationship that we have with somebody and it kind of had that feeling of like each person trying to work through trying to figure out what their relationship is to somebody yes. else yes. and I found that to be fascinating and made me want to keep turning the page like <laughs> and almost even more so because it's not so plot driven that I'm like, something is going on here. What is it? And I don't want to give mm -hmm. any spoilers away, but ne yes. indeed there is something going on. And I just loved your approach with that. And I, I do want to jump into asking you if I can about becoming a novelist later in life and how this story is the thing that turns you into a novelist. You would think there was a good, straightforward answer to that question, but... I love a windy um, answer, Paul. <laughs> yes. Um, I had never intended to write this novel. I've been writing and publishing short stories for a few decades, <laughs> and uh, this one was one of them. And I, as I, I have a cabin in the Missouri Ozarks. And it's at the end of a terrible road, and it's my private little solitude and all of that. Uh, but my children don't seem to have as much interest in it as I do. And so I wrote this story, which became the prologue of the novel, something as a way to suggest what they would do with the place once I was gone. And then I, I finished that, and I, I was really pleased with the work. It, it it really blended well, and I got it published. And I thought, hmm, I still like these characters. I wonder what other stories I could tell about them. And uh, the next one I wrote was my <laughs> my uh, teenage sex story, uh, <laughs> when the, the two sneak off to this cabin to uh, to consummate their their love. Anyway, that worked. And then I thought, well, okay, this is about fathers and sons. I began to see that theme in it. Mm. So that boy becomes a father. So what's the consequence of that? Well, I'll write another story. And that's where he's hating himself and hating his job and, and thinks he's a failure. And everyone in the story contradicts him, says, you're doing it all right. You know, this is exactly the way you should be. And so then it, from there, it just built and built and built. I started getting more stories written. Many of them, 10 of them, I think, were published. And I said, wow, I, I think I have a story cycle here. You know, independent stories that have some common thread running through them. And a writer friend of mine said, no, you don't. You have a novel. Finish your novel. So I did. I, I filled in the gaps. I said, well, I think I need something about him in middle school. And I think I need something about uh, teacher conferences, things like that, that are just part of people's lives. And um, got it all together. I think there were 24 chapters. And then the, the characters actually had a revolt. You know, you hear about these things happening to other writers where <laughs> characters sort of take control. Really? And that happened. Oh they said, this is much too sentimental, you know, and we are not this, not exclusively this kind of person. Uh, and we all want our first person sections where we can speak 
what's really going on. And that's where those interchapter sections came in, where they all speak for themselves. And so I, I had that, I got that all written and I thought, well, now what do I do with this? Because it was a novel length collection. And I shopped it around a bit, didn't have any luck. And um, I began to think, I'll just serialize this on Substack, which is a site where you can post things and people will come and read them. And and so it would kind of be like how Dickens did all of his work back in the mm. day. So I was beginning to to explore that. And I thought, well, if I do that, it'll sink like a stone because I have no name and no, no uh, contacts, anything like that. And so I was looking for publishers for a different novel I'd written and just happened to come across Blue Cedar Press, uh, which said they liked works about people in the Midwest. They said, I think their tagline was courageous works by courageous, courageous writers. I thought, well, I'm not sure either of those apply, but let me submit this. And I did that in, well, it was during the pandemic and I had just retired and that was in December. And then in May, I got an email from them and they said, we really like this novel. Is it still available? And I, after I started screaming, um, I very calmly said, oh, hell yes, it's available. Yes, if you're interested. <laughs> and then it was a whirlwind after that. It was published within five months. Wow. Now, I know friends who will take years to get their novel published after it's accepted. But a mind came together that quickly. And uh, here it is. I'm glad. That is incredible and such a hopeful story. And congratulations, because yes. that you. is Thank a... You. That is a big deal. I mean, I've had a couple of authors on this podcast and some of them have self-published and some of them mm -hmm. have gone through the traditional publishing route. And that traditional publishing route can be brutal uh, with yes. rejection after rejection after rejection. Mm -hmm. Did you submit to a lot of publishers? Did you submit no, to agents not a lot. at all? Or? Actually, I did try the agent route uh, mm -hmm mostly what I've heard the conventional wisdom is if you want to get an agent for your work, you don't want it to have been submitted to publishers first, because if, if the agent says, yes, I'll take this on and I'm going to submit it to XYZ publisher and you've already had a rejection from them. Well, then the agent feels blindsided. Yeah. So you don't want to do that. But I was getting absolutely no response. Mostly it was no response at all. Occasionally it was some form rejections. And I thought, well, okay, I probably just need to move on from this to another project that I need to work on. And so this did sit dormant for a little while. And then that idea of serializing it on Substack came up. And then I just happened on the the right person in the right place at the right time and made that submission and it worked. Hey, we're going to take a quick break here because I want to let you know that this podcast episode is brought to you by Midlife Cues. Are you looking to live life more intentionally and grow personally as you get older? 
The Midlife Cues newsletter is the perfect solution for you. Every Sunday, you can open up your email to find a weekly newsletter filled with carefully researched resources and tools to help you live your best life. It's written and published by Lou Blazer, who left a successful career in corporate America and now focuses on helping midlifers be truly happy and feel fulfilled in the second half of their lives. You can subscribe today at midlifecues.com. So prior to this Shazam moment happening, yes. you're, you have four kids, right? I do. Four kids that you've raised. You've been writing and, and the, you know, all along it sounds like, but you also had a, a regular job to support your family for all those years, correct? Um, I did. Did you always want to be a novelist or? I, I would say yes. I think I always wanted to write creatively. Mm -hmm. Now, early on, after I'd gotten my misguided and soulless undergraduate degree in business administration, I started, con I continued taking courses at the university. This was in St. Louis to to get a certificate in writing and they told me that it was the equivalent of having minored in writing mm -hmm. uh and it had happened that one of the classes was writing feature articles for magazines and i went to the first class and this this man stood before us and um he said okay before the end of the semester you know you'll have your your first article published and such and such very matter-of-factly and i you know instantly raised my hand and said wait what we're actually going to achieve publication because I, I had no credentials at the time. He says, oh, yeah, that's that's the goal. Well, that's our plan. We're going to make that happen. And it did. And so I wrote for 10 years, I wrote feature articles for magazines, just sweetness and light, you know, nature, natural history, occasional interviews that didn't try to dig in to get any dirt or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it paid a little bit of money, but mostly it paid in bylines, which was fine. It was it was my self-esteem that I think I was writing to achieve while I was working in, in corporations and so forth and paying my bills. I was also doing this for myself mm -hmm. on the side. I had one boss who seemed to think it was her responsibility to manage my personal life. Hmm. Yeah. Um, hmm. <laughs> and it never got to the point, but I, I, I feared that it would, that she would say, I need to approve everything you write before you submit it because it might reflect on our company. Hmm. She didn't say that, but I felt that in my bones. And rather than have that com confrontation occur, the cosmic universe decided to shut down our company, <laughs> essentially this was savings and loan back in my St. Louis life. And it was acquired by another much larger outfit. And we were all let go. And so that confrontation never happened because she went one way and I went the other. But I, I, I got kind of nervous about that, mm -hmm. feeling that. And that's why when I started writing fiction, I used a pen name. Mm. Just to kind of hide behind it a little, guard it a little. But then I started writing fiction, and I remember the the first piece I ever got published, the first short story, was for a contest here in Kansas City, where I now live. 
at a uh, one of the magazines, and I thought, well, I won't win because I'm sure they're looking for an article or a story about a divorced person who's having a hard time with the divorce. And that is exactly what story won the contest. <laughs> but the story I submitted uh, was look back kind of on the history of, of Kansas City. And we sort of have a reputation here of not knowing our history, not respecting <laughs> it. And that's kind of the, the avenue I took with my story. And I had it. I wrote it. I, I was pleased with it. And then I went to a writer's conference in Lincoln, Nebraska, and it was about Midwestern literature. And I was literally walking down the hall with somebody I didn't know going to the next presentation. And he said, I suppose you're a writer too. You know, like this place is filled with them. <laughs> and and what do you have? And I told him about this story about people in Kansas City not really remembering their history and all. He says, okay, well, send it to me. I have this journal up in, in my university where I teach. And I did, and he published it. And oh my gosh, the heavens opened. This this happened. Not only did I have feature articles, but now I was a fiction writer. And it 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 just flowed after that. Stories came and came and came, and I wrote them and I'd submit them, and some got accepted. As and that's how it's done, of course. And uh the momentum continued and I, I flopped around a lot trying to figure out what genre I wanted to write in or what I was capable of writing in. Was it mild science fiction, mild fantasy? And I wrote a few pieces like that. Did I have the life experience to write serious literature and so forth and so on? And then I wrote a piece that got accepted called Velvet Elvis. And I'm sure you can picture those paintings of Elvis done oh, yeah. on velvet. Uh -huh. um, and it was about art fairs, you know, the kind that they closed off a couple blocks in your neighborhood and people set mm -hmm. up their booths. And and that was a watershed piece for me because I found a narrative voice or I found that I could call on a narrative voice. I was confident finally with the words and and my own self-image that, yes, you're finally a writer. You how, can do this. How old were you, can I ask, when that happened? Hmm. Or do you I know? would say I was in my 30s. Okay. Late 30s, maybe. Uh-huh. And, of course, you know, I was working for the man and uh, raising the kids. Boy, Boy Scout meetings, those never seemed to end. And dance recitals. And, <laughs> and you know, yep. I mean, what I found was... Uh, the kids, they wanted us to come to their games, but they didn't want to see us. Right. You know, oh, don't yes. embarrass me by being visible, but be there. And, and you know, so we went. Of course we did. That's what you do. You raise your family the right as well as you can. But during all of this, I was writing and I was, it was my hobby and it was, it was fine. And I, I wrote some novels that belong in the bottom drawer and they'll stay there. Um, but then this one sort of just evolved on its own, One Match Fire. And now <laughs> I have a sequel written for it. And it turns oh, out- I'm this, so happy to hear that. <laughs> well, it turns out this thing is a trilogy because ah. I'm writing the third one now. And- when I when I was working with the editors at, at Blue Cedar Press on One Match Fire, 
one of them said, I want to see a novel about the Kathy character. Now that's the wife of yeah. the middle son and the mother of the third son. And she, you know, she was she was sort of background minor character. I mean, she's she's the rock that the family's built on, but one match fire was about fathers and sons. So I couldn't give too much attention to her. But now I'm writing her story from childhood to her death. And it's flowing. It's it's 10,000 words a week coming to me. Just I can't stop. You know, if I'm doing something else, I feel like I should be it, writing on that story. Well, I will say, even though her voice doesn't get featured a lot in this, she mm. is so much a part of it. And I, so. I, I, I just got verklempt, uh thinking about <laughs> her story because you you really built a lot of great background information for her that is is put in in such a way that I'm I'm ready for that next novel. Yeah. <laughs> I will say I'm waiting for it, Paul. <laughs> oh, good, good. Uh, well, I'll make it happen. Um, it's going to be big. I mean, it's going to it's going to need to be edited way down, but it's an entire lifetime of storytelling. So. We'll see. But yeah, yeah, I, I, as I said, the, her husband, Davey, David, is one of life's C students. He's 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 working his best. He's doing his best. And he's but he's just an ordinary guy facing everyday problems. And um, she is the reason he can do it. She is the support behind him. She recognized early on that she was going to have to prop him up. And she didn't mind. She, you know, well, that's what you do when you love someone. And so, yes, there is a story in her. Absolutely. We'll see if it happens. So my goodness. Yeah. The fatherhood themes in this. I mean, it, it, it really is all about fatherhood. How much, if you don't mind me asking, did you pull from your own life? That's a good question. And I have a very bad answer for it. Pretty much nothing. I was the second of eight children in my family. Wow. Very good Catholic family in St. Louis, you know, which is a very Catholic city. And this was, I knew kids in school who had 14 brothers and sisters. That kind of, that was not uncommon, especially in those days. Yeah. But as a result... We had big pot meals, you know, and uh, group activities. And, and my mother was a nurse and worked evenings, so I didn't see her a lot until the weekends. And my father, you know, worked to provide for us, and he went to school at night to get a master's degree, which I later did, and I think it was from his example. But the the issue was that I was never close to my father in the end. So the stories in One Match Fire, the chapters, I think, are my idea of what a good father-son relationship might have been. And I think they're solid. I, you know, they have their disagreements and their spats and their squabbles, but I think they have solid, healthy relationships especially in the end when they overcome the things that stand between them. Yeah, definitely. It's the kind of, it's, I mean, especially the relationship between Davy and his dad. 
is Joe, yes. Joe is that that kind of thing that you always hope for and that you, mm-hmm. you, that you're going to that your kid is going to be that you're going to end up being best friends. Yes. Yes. You know? And and you know from reading that um that Joe did not want to be a father. He, he um definitely opposed that accident that happened to him. Uh and that chapter um twice blessed which is, I guess, the first real chapter in the novel. I took the inspiration for that from the quality of mercy speech in The Merchant of Venice, Mm. where the woman pretending she's a man, pretending he's a lawyer, says mercy is twice blessed. It blesses the receiver, but it also blesses the giver. And that's what Joe finds when he accepts his son, that it will benefit him as well in a profound way. And then, you know, Joe kind of atones for his thoughts for the rest of his life. He's going to be a good father, gosh darn it. And uh, he does everything he can to support his son. And then, of course, his son has to support his father later in life. I'm trying not to tap my fingers on the desk. That's okay. So... Oh, gosh, there was something I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to do with um, with the balancing of raising your family and mm-hmm. the pursuit of of what fulfilled you as a writer. Did you have you ever seen yourself as somebody who like when you were done with your business career, did you think I'm just going to retire or did you have in mind that will be my time? That's when I will pursue this thing full out. No, I worked to pay my bills. I never wanted a career after I saw how easily companies can come in, take you over and shut you down. I said, well, okay, I'm not going to define myself or devote myself to somebody who can do that to me because some pencil pusher in some other city decided it. Mm-hmm. So I took whatever job would pay the bills. And I always said writing is what I will define myself by. So I did the feature articles. I did the short stories and so forth. And my last employer changed the nature of my job. I don't even remember the details now, but it was just something I did not want to do. Mm. I, I think it had, I was always a, in, in a behind the scenes role in whatever I did. And I think, as I recall, this was going to put me more in, in front of people and, and such. Anyway, uh, I was nearly two years away from retirement when that happened. And I said to my wife, does the math work? Can I just quit now. And she said, yeah. And of course we had to scramble to find health insurance and that's Mm -hmm. not cheap, but I stopped. And what I realized was how much mental effort I gave to my employer, which was now free for me to use. And I think that's now manifesting in this just whirlwind pace of writing that I'm doing now. I have all this mental ability that's mine and only mine. 
and I can use it as I wish. And yes, it's wonderful being retired because it has so much free time. And I'll use that. I am. I feel like I am using that really well. I have to leave my little office every couple of hours to let my wife know I'm still around. <laughs> um, but, uh, and you know, and I try to do things. And of course, there's the dog he needs attention to. But um, yeah, it, it's great. It's great being here to do this. So I didn't just start to become a writer after retirement. I was able to let it fully bloom. Mm. Now, I know your logo has a picture of someone with a flower coming out of their head. I, that hasn't happened to me yet, but I'm watching for that. I think I'm maybe, okay. maybe it actually has me yeah, <laughs> metaphorically <laughs> in the form of a novel. Maybe, maybe there should be a book coming out of your head. <laughs> well, that could, I guess. Yeah. Literally almost. Sure. Um, here's a question for you. And I, sure. it may not be a question you can even answer, but I wonder if, um, if your kids, your grown kids have, have talked to you about what they have taken from you having worked to sustain the family the whole time and mm -hmm. at the same time kept alive your writing for yourself. Is, is that something that... Do, do you feel it's influenced who they are and what they are and how they move through the world? Is it something that is undiscussed, but you can see it? I wonder. You mean the writing itself? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the reason why I ask is mm -hmm. um, I, once I had, so I had a theater career before I had kids and once I had kids, I realized I was completely done with the mm -hmm. whole audition process, the whole everything, sure. because it took so much energy to to keep a career afloat as a as an as an actor. You're constantly auditioning, and it's and then if you are fortunate enough to work, it's you're learning your lines, you're steeping yourself in a project, and. I realized after a couple of years uh, with my firstborn that I just didn't want to put my energy there. I right. really wanted to put it towards being a mom. But that said, suddenly I was lost. My my sense of self was like, well, who am I? What, what do I do now? Because mm -hmm. I had so closely identified with myself with my pursuit of a theater career, you know? And so for about, mm, for about five years, I would say I was completely like lost and I was working as you said, to just to working for the man, whenever, however, mm -hmm. um, cobbling together, uh, some sort of work that would bring in money. And, uh, and eventually I found my way to a camera and started a photography career on the side while I was working a full-time job. And that saved me because all of a sudden I, I realized I could pick up my camera and tell stories yes. anytime I wanted to, whether or not I, somebody was paying me to take family photos or headshots or anything like that. I could still pick my camera up anytime I wanted to and practice my craft, you know? And you could make me look good. 
Yeah. <laughs> Make you look your best, Paul. All right. Good answer. <laughs> really well come back. Thank you. I think about these. Things. I recognize what you're saying though. Yes. And and I and then, you know, when I did eventually go full time with the the photography career, it, it's some, um, you know, I realized that part of what I wanted to do. I didn't want to work for the man ever again. I by the time I got to my late 40s, I had been through a couple of layoffs, you sure. know. And I started to feel unemployable. And I also wanted to be an example to my kids. I wanted mm-hmm. to for them to be able to see me try to do something that was important to me that ha- gave me purpose. And my husband as well has tried to continue on with directing and teaching theater and, and you know, so we have tried to maintain our own passions. Yes. Even while trying to be the best present parents that we can with Boy Scouts and yes. sporting things and all the things mm-hmm. that, that are there that, that, so the kids know that they're treasured and supported right, right. you know uh, I, my children all knew that i wrote and if we might throw them all in the car and take them to some nature park i wouldn't hesitate to say well i'm going to write an article about this and we need to explore these trails or this visitor center so they they would understand that that was going on in the background and as I was writing the fiction, I would send a given article or story to one of them, say, how close did I come to getting this right? For example, um, in this novel, there's a chapter called The Lonely Road, where he works in a warehouse loading trucks. Well, between college careers, my oldest son worked for one of the big delivery companies loading trucks. And I I quizzed him closely. How does this work? And what do you do? And so forth and so on. And then I sent it to him and I said, how close did I come? And it was fine. In the sequel I've written, there's a uh, chapter where the son, Kurt, runs the New York Marathon. And his parents and his spouse Um, are watching as spectators. And so I ran the New York Marathon with my daughter. Oh, wow. Six years ago. And so I've sent it to her and um, I said, how close did I come to getting this right? They have to be at this intersection to see him run by. And then they have to hustle over to that intersection to see him run by. And then did I get it right? And so forth and so on. Um, Unfortunately, she's eight months pregnant and hasn't been able to read that for some reason, you know? Yeah. And she has three older kids. So, um, but, but they've, they've always known that this was something I was doing. And in fact, the cover of One Match Fire was designed by my daughter. Uh, The front cover, now the publisher gave it to the team that they use and they worked it from there. But they were all, my daughter was part of that. Um, and they, they'd all known it. Now it happens that, um, my second son is a pediatrician and one of the characters in this novel is a pediatrician. 
And the only comment he gave me about after he read it was, it's just too personal for me to read. So I think I may have taken too much um, from him for my hobby. I didn't, I don't think I would say that the writing uh, influenced the way I parented. I, my, I had decided early on that, um, you know, I wanted to be a present parent because my parents were very, very busy raising eight children. And, and I, I thought, well, there are two things I can do. One is to be an example, just a role model of what a good adult can become and hope that they glean something from that. And the second thing was um, to always appeal to their better sense. So, uh, you know, so-and-so got drunk at a party and crashed his dad's car, but you're too smart to do that, right? And you're not going to fall for that kind of reasoning, right? You're too smart. And I, I think that may have worked. Um, I th certainly think that's a charitable way to raise a person to assume the best and appeal to that now when my twin sons went off to college together to the same college um they came home a couple weeks later the first weekend they had free with bags of laundry and they sat my wife and i down on the couch and sat in chairs opposite us and I thought, oh boy, here it comes. What's going to happen? And they said, you two did everything right. Oh my God. And I think what happened was they went to college. They saw how other people lived, how other people were raised. And they realized they had it pretty good. Wow. I take that as testimony from them. That Well, goodness, how can you? That's incredible. It, for, for them to, Wow. You just yeah. completely blown my mind to have them say that to you while they're in college. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's, you know, sometimes I think kids are looking to separate themselves. Yes. And yes. find their own way and and can be very much like push parents back and away right, at that right, point right. in their lives. So, wow, congratulations on that. That is huge. Well, And, and one of those was the man who's now a pediatrician and his twin brother is a special ed teacher in high school. So I feel like what better people to make a statement like that? Yeah, it, it was, it was nice. It was very wow. nice. When I announced to, to the family that this novel was going to be published, my doctor's son said, wait, how long has this been in development? And the curious thing is it, it was in development for 10 years because I wrote that first story thinking there was no more coming that that was a one-off and then the other stories trickled out over the years and then it took about a year to make it happen and uh, yeah so about 10 years and i hope that anybody that. listening right now who has dreams of being a, a a writer or a novelist or doing something that is um uh, an artistic challenge that a novel is a, is a thing that can take 10 years. Oh, easily. Yes. Right. Easily. And, and I hope that anybody listening is, is, is taking this information in and remember to be patient with yourself in the process. That's all I have to hey, say. <laughs> patience and faithful. Yeah. You really have to believe that it will happen, that you can be the one to make it happen. 
And um, I never, I never gave up, even when I was thinking of serializing. And I thought, well, maybe that's one avenue that I can do. But I wanted it to happen, and it did. I'm pleased. Incredible, Paul. Thank you now, so much for. Oh, go ahead. What? Well, I was going to just add that one comment that's come up a few times um, with the novel is in the prologue when he's reading his father's journals and he comes across a reference to a character named KD. Yes. Know who that is. Who and is that? He'd never heard of this person before. Does dad have an old girlfriend now or something? And you never know. You never learn who KD is. You left us hanging, Paul. <laughs> well, but, but that's kind of the point. Um, yes. That as much as you know someone, as intimately as you know someone, there will always be mysteries, things you don't know, you can't ever know, because there you are still yourself, an individual, and you have to live and operate by your own principles. I love it. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation. Thank you. How can people find your work? My webpage, paullamrider.com, has a number of links, including a list of my published stories, but none of those links work. <laughs> but if you go to my blog, which uh -huh. is called Luck Lucky Rabbit's Foot, um, there are live links there. So if people want to read some of my older stories, they can go there. The novel itself is available directly from Blue Cedar Press uh, and you know, all the, uh, all the normal places you can order it at your local bookstore. You can get it through Amazon, any of the online uh, public or avenues. So it's, it's easy enough to get. Yes. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time and your candor and uh, great story. Well, thanks. Thanks. I'm glad you liked it. I hope other people do as well. Very much so. Very much so. Well, there you have it. When I talk about midlife, I very often talk about the opportunities that are here for us at this point in our life. I think so often we go down the trail of becoming an adult and we step into that world in the way we think we're supposed to doing the things that seem right as prescribed by general society's values rather than our own. And I think we can get lost in the balance. And midlife and beyond, I will say, I think gives us the opportunity to get back to ourselves to reinvent ourselves, not in the sense of changing ourselves or self-improvement, but in getting to know ourselves, maybe going back to the nut of what originally excited us when we were younger, or maybe finding our way to new passions, to new indulgences. How exciting is that? We are not done yet. We are just getting started. All right. Thank you so much for being with me. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, 
I hope you have a great week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.